This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 57. It does seem that people are getting their work done. U.S. productivity and output is up. If you look at GDP growth, we're back on track. The most amazing thing is we're on track, despite having you know an awful pandemic and lockdowns and everything else that's gone on. So, you know, the people that claim work from home is destroying the economy or it's killing productivity is just completely inconsistent with aggregate data. We, we went from pre-pandemic 5% of days to now 30% of days of work from home. Growth is faster than it was pre-pandemic. So there may be a bit of, you know, compression, a bit of people leaving early on Friday to go away on the weekend. If they're doing that, they appear to be making it up on Thursday night, Saturday morning, Sunday morning. How can you best design and optimize your remote or hybrid work practices to increase productivity, collaboration, and culture? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Today, my guest is the one and only Nick Bloom. I say the one and only because Nick is the preeminent expert on working from home research, which is a topic that I know all HR leaders have been wrestling with over the past three years. Nick is also a professor of economics at Stanford University and has been researching working from home for over 20 years. He also co-founded the workfromhomeresearch.com, which is a definitive source for all research related to work from home. Nick's research and insights have been covered extensively in national and international media. And if you've ever read an article on work from home, hybrid, or remote work over the past few years, you've likely seen his name being quoted. I'm excited to have Nick join us today as I really want his help in setting the record straight when it comes to remote and hybrid work. While I had a very high bar for our conversation, Nick did not disappoint as we discussed how he became an expert on working from home research, the real reason work from home has increased over the past few years, hint, it's not just the pandemic, why people working from home are more likely to log hours at night or on the weekends, what the research really says about productivity and remote hybrid work, why organized hybrid work schedules are becoming more popular, and why he believes work from home will increase like a Nike swoosh over the next 10 years and much more. Nick, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for having me on. We're excited to talk with you today. We've been following your work frankly, since the pandemic started. So we're three plus years into being, myself, a huge fan of the work that you do because it's so timely, so fact-based, so research-based. Honestly, I think we'd be lost without it when I think about work from home. So this is a conversation I've been looking forward to for a while. And the first question I wanted to ask you is really, how did you become a leading expert in voice on work from home research? Was this intentional, a happy accident? How did it happen? Now, it wasn't intentional. So the history, there's really two things that collided. One is I'm one of four kids. I grew up in the UK. You can probably hear my English accent. Both of my parents worked. And so they used to, back in the 80s, I mean, I'm 50 now, so this is going back to the 80s, would work from home on and off on days to cover childcare problems. And so I've been growing up with it and always wondered what it was like. And if you think back in the 80s, it was frankly terrible. It was like pieces of paper and 
managers deeply suspicious and phoning them up and stuff. And then the other fortuitous thing is I had a graduate student at Stanford called James Liang, who was the co-founding CEO and now chairman of Trip.com, one of the big three global travel agents. And they wanted to increase work from home because they had so much expensive real estate in Shanghai. And they were like, well, we've got thousands of people in these call centers. And they ran this experiment I got involved in back in 2010, saying, well, look, we're going to let these guys work from home four days a week, but we think they're going to goof off. The question is, how much will they goof off? And so the question is, you know, how many dollars do you save for getting rid of expensive offices versus how much, you know, messing about is there is at home? And they did a big randomized control trial where they randomized people and they found they were like amazed. They found completely against everything they expected that the folks randomized into working from home were 13% more productive. The short answer when you looked in the data is they were just working more minutes because they were commuting less and you know took shorter breaks and it was quieter. So from that point onwards, I was like, wow, that got well published, a lot of coverage. It went kind of quiet till 2019. And then you can imagine the world exploded in 2020, like March 2020. It's like an earthquake in this area. Well, as an economist, that must be fascinating because you know, you're understanding how can people be productive? And a lot of times we think, well, gosh, people are not going to be productive. They're not going to care. But the reality is we all did. And we did put more hours in and we probably are putting more hours in if you work from home than if you had to commute, right? Because you know, you got to get, get back, get in the car, get in the train. So it's fascinating that journey you went on. And to your point, working from home is my research and really your research. You said that it really has risen fivefold from 2019 to 2023. 40% of US employees are working remotely at least one day a week. How has that changed our economy and how we live? So it's had a number of impacts. First, I'm happy to go through this later on. I think the reason it's stuck at 40% of employees is quite simply it makes firms money. So the US is a capitalist economy. You know, I used to work at McKinsey. I'm totally all in on capitalism. I'm an economist. The only reason work from home has been so successful is it's so profitable for companies. And if you break it down, hybrid is profitable because it has effectively no impact on productivity, but reduces quit rates and makes it easier to recruit. And you know the classic saying in HR is, for a grad, it costs about 50% of a year's salary every time somebody quits. So if you can drive that down, you're saving, there's probably saving literally billions of dollars across the US. Fully remote is kind of different. Fully remote probably reduces productivity by 10, 20% maybe is the typical numbers. But there's an enormous upside. You have no office costs, you're saving 10, 20%, and you can hire nationally or internationally. You're cutting wage bills by maybe 20, 30, 40%. So fully remote is a different thing. But either way, you know, it's here to stay because it's making a lot of money. And then it's just flooded upstream and downstream to affect so much else. I mean, my favorite one in some ways, and I'm happy to drill into this, is what's called the donut effect. It's always good to name things after nice food. So the donut effect is the fact that about a million Americans have left the center of big cities and moved out to the suburbs. You know, it's easy to explain why you happen to work in Goliath National Bank or, you know, Big Tech or Law Incorporated, and you're in the center of New York or Austin or Chicago or, you know, Atlanta or San Francisco. Pre-pandemic, you're in the office five days a week. So you don't really want to live a long way away. Suddenly now you're only coming in two, maybe three days a week. And you're thinking, well, like, A, I could put up with an hour commute. I don't like it, but I could put up with it if it's only twice a week. But that now enables me to move out and get a home office, which I really do want, and a bit of space in the backyard. And so we've just seen a massive movement out. Now, that's then ricocheted into so much else. So retail, retail spending in city centers is down in the suburbs, is booming. Leisure activities are booming in the suburbs. I had a piece on golf. Golf is completely exploded. Gyms. 
pickleball, shopping malls in some of the suburbs. Other things are down. So city center spending's down. Rail transit into the center and back, which is used by basically grad commuter types, is way down. It's like amazing. So many other things down and upstream have been affected by this. And you really can never have predicted that. No one could have seen that the pandemic would cause those types of ripple effects across our society. And one thing I thought when recently posted this about golf and people taking some work off in the middle of the day, work out, do some golf, run some errands when they're working from home in this hybrid. Tell me more about how has that shifted work a little bit? Are people now taking three or four hours a day off or two hours in the middle of the day? What's that look like? Yeah. So for folks in HR, there's some really important lessons in this. I'll just go through what we know and then the so what. So what we know is using massive scale data sets of 140 million journeys a day and satellite photography, we can figure out golf playing has gone up by about 60% post-pandemic. All of that increases in the week. And it's almost all in, you know, working hours during the weekday. So there has been an explosion. So just to give you numbers, like 2, 3 p.m. on a Wednesday afternoon, the number of rounds of golf is up 3x. I mean, this is not 10%. This is 300%. These are enormous increases. So then what's going on? Well, if you survey people as to why they like to work from home, number one is no commute. So fine, we all get that. That's very predictable. Number two is maybe obvious when you think about it is more flexibility. So folks say, look, when I'm working from home, I really like to be able to go pick my kids up from school, go to the dentist, go work out, or, you know, I don't play golf, but if you do, you know, I've tried, but I'm just terrible. Go play a round of golf. Now, as a head of HR or a CEO or CFO, that may make you really nervous. The critical thing here is that folks appear to be making up that time in the evenings on the weekend. So the story is, I'm a big golf player. I want to play golf. The course is kind of quarter on a Wednesday morning. I play Wednesday morning. I make up for it in the evenings. As a CPO or CHR, the critical thing to make sure that happens is you have good performance management systems. So if you have a firm and you have 360 reviews, there may be every six months, you have very good tracking of outputs, what people achieve. You can say to your employees, hey, Nick, you're going to work from home Monday, Friday. You can manage your time but you need to meet your objectives. If you don't, there's going to be consequences. And if you do, that's great. As an employee, I'm also happy. I don't want somebody breathing down my neck, clock watching me. I want to better play golf if I want and watch Netflix in the evening and make up my work. And so it's a win-win, but it critically relies on good HR and good basically performance management systems. It's so interesting to hear how that shifted because yeah, people want flexibility. They want autonomy. They want to be able to be adults and make those things back up. We should encourage that. Now, I think the golf did surprise the heck out of me because I think golf <laughs> takes a long time. I mean, I get maybe getting a workout in, but going on a golf course for four hours, that's a whole other story. The other big debate, well, there's two big debates, frankly, in work from home, right? And I know you're intimately familiar with both of these. We started to tackle the first one, but I think the first one, I want the definitive answer, what at least the research says today. Are remote workers, can they be as productive as workers who are in the office each day or hybrid workers? Kind of why or why not? And you already kind of mentioned that remote workers, fully remote, are actually less productive. What gives there and is that productivity that really matters and impacts the business or not? There's a number of studies. I'm going to kind of summarize them because the numbers bounce around a bit. I'll give you kind of the average, the typical numbers. So the typical numbers where people have looked is for fully remote employees, you're maybe looking at minus 10 percent less productive, which is various measures of output per minute. Why is that? I think there's a range of reasons. It's harder to mentor and mentor others. 
it seems a bit harder to innovate, to kind of have face-to-face discussions. It's harder to build culture. And there's potentially some issues around, you know, self-control and motivation when you're not in the energy of the office. Now, that doesn't mean, however, that fully remote's a bad idea. To be very clear, fully remote has massive cost reductions, which are typically much bigger than 10%. So if I was to position it, if I said, look, you can have this thing called fully remote, dollars produced per hour is minus 10%, costs per hour is minus 50%. Are you interested? Most people say, yeah, that's amazing. You know, output per dollar is up 40%. And that's basically the proposition of fully remote. It's not about boosting productivity. It's about dramatically cutting costs. And the cost cuts are very obvious there from no office space and from hiring globally or nationally. The times fully remote fails, where you see people get really angry, is that they have the office they're already paying for and they're hiring local employees. So to pick on two examples... There was Twitter. Elon Musk was raging about it, but he owned the office and he was hiring people on San Francisco wages. So, and you know, that wasn't that surprising. Or Zoom recently has called folks back to two days a week. Again, they own a lot of real estate. They're hiring people in the Bay Area. So you don't want to be on the off diagonal. There's a kind of strategy diagonal. Hire great people locally, have office space, solution hybrid, have no office space, hire globally, where it's much cheaper to source talent, solution, fully remote. And those two are very sustainable, very profitable strategies. Just don't be on the off diagonal, which doesn't make sense. And to wrap up on hybrid, it looks like it's about net zero on productivity. There's ups and downsides, but it doesn't look like it really punishes it or helps it. But there's no cost reduction in hybrid. Well, why do you do hybrid? The big sales pitch of hybrid is you're flat on productivity. Turns out you're mostly flat on space. So it's not really about saving space because most people want to come in on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Where you're saving money is recruitment and retention. So just to give you a number, actually, I'll give you two numbers. One is we've surveyed, I don't know, like 50, 100,000, I mean, such huge samples by now and asked them, how do you value working from home two, three days a week, aka hybrid? in terms of a pay change. And the valuation is equivalent to about an 8% pay increase. So it's a pretty big perk. Now, when I talk to recruiters, they say perks went from the big two pre-pandemic, which is pension and healthcare, to the big three, pension, healthcare, and work from home. So it really helps on that. To give another number, I was involved in a separate randomized control trial of a big company with 1,600 graduate employees. These are computer engineers, marketing, finance, probably very much like a lot of folks listening, they're randomized into five days in the office or three days in the office on Wednesday, Friday at home. And what we saw is a 33% reduction in quits for people that were allowed to work from home two days a week. So hybrid is a different sales pitch. Hybrid is there's no downsides. Productivity is flat. It's not better, but it's not worse. You're not saving in any space. You're kind of flat there, but you're saving a lot of money on graduate recruitment, training, recruitment packages, bringing people up to speed, then to have them leave six months later. The numbers I hear is it typically is about half a year of salary every time somebody quits. So you can you know, do the math. If you reduce quit rates of grads from 30% to 20%, you're saving just enormous amounts. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's one of the debates you hear is that you've got to be in face-to-face to mentor, to help grow people, to have innovative ideas. If we're always fully remote, no one's really kind of coming together so much more intentional. And that kind of leads me to my second debate. You've already talked about, and I think it's pretty clear from the research you've provided, but a hybrid schedule, it sounds like Mondays and Fridays, people work from home. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursdays are the days people are typically going to go to the office. Is that right? Is that kind of what we're seeing it shake out or do I have that wrong? No, no, no. So I think the closest analogy is to ice cream, actually. So everyone talks about vanilla. Vanilla is the most popular flavor, but it's only about 20% of the market. So as with hybrid, the most popular plan is Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office, 
Monday, Friday at home. The Flex Report has data on this, but it turns out that's only about 15 to 20% of hybrids. So there's every which way out there. But yeah, the standard of us to say, look, what's the most common? It will be some version of that or Tuesday, Thursday in the office. That seems to work. That's where things have settled in. I think the big debate is coordination versus flexibility and happy to talk about that. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of times organizations now are mandating, hey, we're all back in on this day. So the coordination, I guess, what have you learned from that in terms of should you let individual teams and leaders decide or should be mandated that we're all back in on Tuesdays or Wednesdays, et cetera? Yeah. So there's two different views just to put them out there. And I'll tell you where I'm seeing things heading. So one view is both sides position their view very positively. One view is called organized hybrid or coordinated hybrid. Everyone's in on the same day. The sales pitch for that is when you survey people and ask them why they want to come into the office. The big two reasons are work with colleagues and socialize with colleagues. So because of that, you want people in on the same day. Most, you know, when you ask them, is it, it's not because of the manager, that's not chosen very much. It's not the free bagel or the ping pong table. It's basically coming and see colleagues. So under that view, if I'm coming in on Tuesday, I want my colleagues in. I'm not coming in to use the desk. The alternative view, which is the choice view as well, people want flexibility. They want to choose the days they come in, come in on some days, not come in on others. I'm increasingly seeing firms go towards coordination why? Because it looks like it improves productivity. So the big reason to have people in to have an office is there's a lot of tasks that are best done face-to-face. So training, mentoring, maybe some sensitive discussions, larger group meetings, presentations. It doesn't really achieve that if half the office here or one-fifth is in on Monday, one-fifth on Tuesday. So coordination is like winning out. In many ways, it's not that surprising if you think back to 2019. So in 2019, we have the office for you know 148 hours a week. Well, no, it's 168 hours a week. Sorry, you know 24 times seven, and we're only in for basically 50 Monday to Friday. What is it? Eight to five, roughly. And people coordinate on those times. So I never heard pre-pandemic somebody say we let people work from 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. or Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You know the days were the days, and is working hours during the weekday. So post-pandemic, I think that's where things are heading. You asked how it's executed. There is a little more flexibility in the sense that the majority, slightly above half of firms doing this, are doing it team by team. So they're saying, look, there's a group of 20 people or division or you know office. You guys basically work together. The Cleveland office or the industrials group or you know high tech, you guys work together. There's a team of 30. You should internally sort things out. You're not really overlapping that much with marketing or you know real estate. So. They can choose their days and each choose their days. So that's where things are heading. There is an alternative plan, which is the Disney model, for example. You're all in Monday to Thursday. Friday's empty. I think in practice, it doesn't matter a lot because if you're coming in three days a week, we know nobody wants Friday. So Friday's dead. It's all Steve Roth mentioned Friday's dead. I think that's correct. So really, it's four days. Monday's relatively unpopular. So you're looking really at three days. So whether or not you let teams choose it or it's chosen at the company level, it ends up a pretty similar thing as some combination of Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. What made me laugh, Nick, as you're going through that is that we've always had coordination, right? We all went to work Monday through Friday, eight to five. It wasn't like a lot of us had these different schedules, but we sort of went remote. Now we've kind of come back to this coordination piece. I wonder the Fridays, with Fridays being dead, I definitely have seen that and heard that from people I know and working. Does it feel like people are starting to stop work on Fridays? The whole idea of this four-day work week, and some people are just saying, well, I'm going to make it happen either way. I'm not going to go in the office. I'm going to be done by 2 o'clock, kind of shut down, start the weekend early. Or is it just I don't want to go in the office? Are you seeing trends around that? 
as of yet, I haven't seen any data. Or I mean, I should step back a minute. Remember, even in 2019, Fridays were quieter. So the fact that Fridays are a slower day than Monday to Thursday is not that surprising. At least in Britain, I'm not sure it's true in the US, manufacturing often used to have a half-day Friday construction. So a number of, you know, quite physically demanding jobs did. If you went into, you know, Wall Street, Friday afternoon, it's pretty quiet. I mean, people aren't staying. They're drinking or maybe you're out. But so whether it's become quieter, I don't have any data on. I've heard anecdotes and stories about this. I've seen nothing that strong on this. It does seem that people are getting their work done. I mean, US productivity and output is up. If you look at GDP growth, we're back on track. And the most amazing thing is we're on track despite having, you know, an awful pandemic and lockdowns and everything else that's gone on. So the people that claim work from home is destroying the economy or it's killing productivity is just completely inconsistent with aggregate data. We we went from pre-pandemic 5% of days to now 30% of days of work from home. Growth is faster than it was pre-pandemic, and we've had a horrible pandemic and lockdown. So there may be a bit of compression, a bit of people leaving early on Friday to go away on the weekend. If they're doing that, they appear to be making it up on Thursday night, Saturday morning, Sunday morning. I think there's a bit of a flavor of becoming like students. If you remember back to your time as a student, no students work nine, well, very few work nine to five. They're basically pulling all nighters and working a bit more weekends. We haven't gone all the way there, but there's a little bit more of that. That's a funny analogy. Thinking back to college and grad school, you're right. You'd sort of study when you had to, stay up late, work the weekends, make it work. Let's talk a little bit more about HR implications and what you're seeing for organizations, HR leaders. The first question I had was really around how can HR leaders optimize performance and engagement, fully remote or hybrid settings? What's the research say on how to bring people together, drive performance and drive that engagement? I think I'll go through four tips I can give. So the first is the critical importance of performance management. I've actually been saying to CEOs, CFOs, et cetera, that HR, performance management systems are really important. Why? Well, if you think when folks are in the office, you can get away with management by walking around. I'm not claiming it's great, but I can walk by JPC, the desk typing away appear to be working. It's kind of four out of 10, five out of 10 management. I wouldn't claim it's great but it's livable. And with that, you can maybe get away without good performance reviews. As soon as folks are remote one plus day a week, that's no longer possible. So a critical thing one, probably six monthly rigorous reviews, proper system, HR's involved, managers and work, employees are assessed, given feedback, they're collated, it goes through, there's a grading scale, et cetera. I think point two is the importance of having videos on when people are on Zoom calls. So another fact I hear regularly is folks saying on the work from home days, sometimes I notice there are folks without their videos on. I would norm it again from HR that if there are meetings of, say, 20 or less individuals, it's important that everyone turns their video on. If it's like 30, 40, it's a town hall, it's a broadcast, maybe not. But look, we have survey data. We ask people, are you more engaged when your video is on? And also, do you feel other people are more engaged with the videos on? The answer is strongly yes and yes. So it's pretty clear people that's videos off are muted are not focused so much. The third thing is around making sure that when people are in the office, they're doing activities that make it feel worthwhile coming in. And that's as much management as HR. But that is saying, look, when you're in, what benefits from face-to-face? Think about those activities. They are probably presentations, meeting, training, mentoring, lunches, events, et cetera. So those should be scheduled on in-person days. And home days should be discussion, reading, writing, you know, analysis, quiet, one-on-one things. I also think the office needs to be designed to support that. So 
getting rid of a lot of cubicle space, which is kind of like library style offices. They're places you go and quietly work, individual small rooms and having more meeting rooms, presentation rooms, places that people can socially work together. So factory is to make it work, make organized hybrid work. There's got to be a social element and reason people come in. They've got to leave at the end of the day thinking I could not have done that at home. I benefited from coming in. And fact four is I think we should be mandating and managing anchor days, common days in the office. So to explain why, imagine you have a plan whereby in your team, it is Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office, Monday, Friday at home. If there's a team of eight people and let's say Stuart decides not to come in, the other seven, you know, all eight of us are having a meeting. We can't have it in the canteen. We can't have it outside. We can't have it over coffee. We've got to go to a room. We've got to connect up Stuart. We've got to say, okay, can you hear us? Fiddle around with the microphones. It's really annoying. He's probably, you know, disconnected. His head is 20 foot high on the side of the room. It's contentious. The meeting ends. We walk out. We're still carrying on. We're chatting in the corridor. He's not really connected. So I think if your kid is sick or your car breaks down or something, then you can't come in. Then a lot of firms are now saying their policy to say, you know, we should attend to what you need to attend to at home. We will take notes and update you later. In-person meetings are going to be for in-people attendees. If you have childcare issues, we totally understand it. It happens here are the minutes, we'll let you join later. Maybe the only exception is if you're sick, to try and encourage folks not to come into the office. If you know they think they're sick, they can connect in. But the big thing is to try and mandate people to come in on their office days and suggest also actually they work from home on their home days. So to try and manage that process. Yeah, it's all about being intentional, I think, is what you're saying. There's some really good tips in there that we hadn't really thought through. But And I think the point of having these meetings in person and someone's on video it's a different experience a little bit, right? And you feel like, especially if you're not in that room, you don't really get to know what happens afterwards. So it does make a lot of sense to say, hey, we're trying this in-person time versus trying to bring someone in virtually, which I think is challenging. My next question, Nick, I think this is the one that, honestly, I think HR needs to do a better job of this. So in your experience, what's the most effective strategies for measuring and quantifying the impact of remote and hybrid work on the organization's bottom line? So I'm a CEO and says, hey, we went fully remote, we're doing hybrid. How do I know it's working? Show me the money. Show me the ROI on this. Sure. So if that was me, I would first look at office costs. If it turns out, if I'd gone fully remote, I should have slashed a lot of office space. I mean, there's no one coming in. You should subleasing. I get that in the short run, you may not get much money from subleasing because the market's a wash. But certainly you'd think at least energy bills, security bills, some other running costs would be down and you may have subleased some of your space. And in the long run, that should realize. For fully remote, that's saving one. The other saving should be as soon as people are shifted onto fully remote, as they are replaced, I would hire the position nationally, even globally. And even as they come up for a renewal, it's a bit sensitive, but that's a job that someone else can do for half the price somewhere else. That's the kind of individual case situation. I don't quite know how to you know, address that, but certainly the talent costs or so the wage bills should actually be down. On fully remote, I'm, you know, if it were me, if it were my company, when I've sold it to managers, I'm like, look, I'm going to concede there may be a hit on productivity. You can argue that forever. But most people in the back of their minds think fully remote is not as productive. I'm like, fine, let's just accept it. I'm happy to take 20% if that's your starting bid. I can bet you I can beat down more than 20% of cost, so it's a good deal. Now, on hybrid, what I'd be looking for is looking at retention, retention rates. Have retention rates been affected? Now, the only tricky thing in America to look at it versus we had a nice experiment out in China is you're doing the whole firm at the same time. And it's a bit hard to see the counterfactual. But put it another way, the CEO wants, you could say, look, we have three offices. Why don't we try forcing one office to be fully in person? And then I can provide you some nice data 
on how, you know, we're going to see crit rates go through the roof. Well, why don't I point you towards what happened at Twitter or Lloyds of London or various other organizations that tried to get people. So Grindr, for example, has recently announced they're trying to get folks back full time and we'll see what happens. But I think that's the benefit of hybrid recruitment and retention. I've talked to a lot of recruitment agents and they've said, you know, good luck hiring anyone. Any firm could do this own internal experiment. Here's another way to do it. Post 20 job ads on LinkedIn. 10 of them are fully remote. 10 of them are hybrid. Or maybe 30. So, you know, another 10 are fully in person and see, look at the quality of applicants you get. Well, you know, maybe one of each. I mean, I don't know how many job ads you need to generate data, but I suspect you can pretty rapidly rustle up. Say, look, as a hypothetical experiment, we paid $3,000, 1000 each for these job ads. Look at the quality of the applicants and how many people applied. That may be enough there and then to persuade your CEO. Without hybrid, you're not going to get anyone very good. That's a brilliant idea. I love that idea. I hope someone does that after listening to this podcast, Nick. And for CEOs that made these decisions, it feels like, especially maybe early on, it was all really personality-driven, right? It's what I want. It's I expect people back in. I've got these assumptions. Have the organizations, you think, kind of figured it out now where there's more research and people are making more fact-based decisions? Or is it still emotion-driven from CEOs like Elon Musk or Bob Eigner at Disney, et cetera? It's really interesting. Musk, by the way, has two reasons why he hates work from home. Number one, and I'll come on to it in a minute. He's just the type that works like crazy, loves work as in every minute and wants everyone else to be in. The second reason is that Twitter, if you remember, he wanted to go for a massive downsizing. It is expensive to pay severance pay. Better yet, get people to quit. How do you get people to quit? Tell them they've got to come in the office five days a week, shout at them, be nasty, do horrible things, and lo and behold, half your workforce quits, particularly when you've got high-end techies. So it's a little hard to interpret what Musk is saying. So I kind of step back from Musk. In general, what we see is most middle senior managers are as into work from home, as in like hybrid, not particularly into fully right, not particularly into fully into person as the average employee. The exceptions are a bunch of super elite CEOs, the Igers, Solomons, you know, the guy at JP Morgan, uh, Jamie Diamond. Now, what's unique about these individuals is they are incredibly successful. They're also incredibly hardworking, incredibly highly paid. They are people who probably love work, are spending 100 to 120 hours a week, killing themselves to get to the top of the pile, being super successful. They are not representative. And unsurprisingly, these individuals actually quite like going into work because work is what their life revolves around. And they kind of project it onto others. So interestingly, I was talking to Greg Ipp at the Wall Street Journal, who had the same view. His sense was, look, the issue with a lot of these tippity-top CEOs pushing for full return is they're really a bit out of touch with their workforce. Now, it's not the CEOs are wrong. They just self-extrapolate. And these CEOs are super alpha type A. You know, They're not representative of the typical employee. And the typical employee is happy to come in for three days a week, but they just don't want to be in five days a week because their life, they've got families and kids that they also want to see and hobbies. And so that's where the real disconnect is. These insanely hardworking, mega successful CEOs that self-project, but it turns out they are one in a million, quite literally. That's such a great take. Thanks, Nick, for going into that. What about your predictions are for the future of remote and hybrid work? I mean, where are we going and how can HR leaders kind of best prepare the organization for what lies ahead? So the future is, I call it the Nike swoosh of work from home. So what do I mean by that? Work from home has been falling for the last two, three years as we come off the back of the pandemic. It's actually flatlined. If you look at Castle data, the Sway data and the census data, all three of them are flat in 2023. They're all very high quality surveys or the Castle swipe data. You can argue with individually. They all tell the same story. So I'm very confident in the US at this point we're flat. The swoosh is that 
running forwards into 24, 25, 26, work from home is going to start to pick up. Why is that? Well, it's kind of easy to explain from a couple of basic economic principles. So one is what's called market size effects. These are classics. People learn them in B school or the, you know, an undergrad, which is when the market gets really big, firms want to innovate to serve that market to take a slice of the profit pie. Now, think about a market, the market for work from home products. Work from home in the US has gone up 5x. And as a result, if you're Google, Amazon, Apple, startups, venture capitalists, you're like, hey, there's a lot of people doing this. 40% of working Americans or 170 million working Americans are looking at 70 million people working from home once a week. That is a lot of money if we can make a product that serves that market. And so fact one is what's called directed technical change. The rate of innovation to improve work from home, which is critical in the long run, has just picked up a pace. So the reason it's higher now than it was 20, 30, 40 years ago is we have cloud and Dropbox and Zoom and Teams, et cetera. So that is accelerating. We already see it in the pattern data. The second economic force pushing it up longer run is what's called life cycle effects. So if you look at firms, right now, all the new startups and little firms are much more remote than medium and bigger older firms because you know they're born into this. And as these firms grow, they become tomorrow's small, you know, and the next year's medium and eventually the future's bigger firms. And in a similar way with new grads, new grads are now just used to, they've been through university with bits of remote, they're totally normalized and happy to work from home one or two days a week. So that's also a slow drift. So what you really are seeing is the remote RTO force is petering out and is dying off. The underlying long run push of technology and these life cycle effects are pushing up. Right now, they're canceling each other out. Next year, year after two years out. So this is swoosh. I'm pretty confident about it. If you step back and think of the big picture, it seems pretty obvious that work from home five years and now is going to be above where it is now. Ten years, massively above. It's fascinating. It makes a lot of sense. Plus, people are demand is there, right? People embrace it. They like it. And the more they get used to it, the more they're going to want that. So that makes a lot of sense, Nick. Last question for you now. I ask this to HR people, and I know you're not an HR person, but I typically ask, what's one word or phrase you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? I'll give you that question, or if you want, it could be what's one word or phrase will define the future of work for the next five to 10 years? No, I think organized hybrid, whether you know that's the exact term that will be used, that's the concept. I think it's going to be typically for managers and professionals, having them come in three days a week, having that effective, productive, efficient. So both firms making more money out of it and employees happy and want to stick with it. And I think it just requires organization. We organized work reasonably well pre-pandemic around Monday to Friday, nine to five or eight to five. Now it's going to be probably organized around Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office, Monday, Friday at home. As I went through that, went need particularly coordination, it also needs performance management. Performance management is really critical, actually, for HR. In some senses, this is their time. Now is your moment. Seize the moment. It's never been as important because if you can't desk watch people, you have to evaluate their output because otherwise they're goofing off or who knows what they're doing. And so and that needs systematic processes. You can't just rely on individual managers to do that. You need a formalized system. Well, I think they're golfing, Nick. I think they might be golfing. That's what they're there doing. There you go. Show the golfing <laughs> figures to your CEO and say, look, we're finding people golf. We just want them to do their work in the evenings. And to do that, we need a 360 review or whatever you're trying to push. And it should be well, twice this- a year, by the way. I mean, that's the other thing. Quite often it's annually. It's much easier to fix issues if it's twice a year. Actually, when I was in McKinsey, we'd have twice a year, but you'd have kind of informal check-ins every three months. And I thought it was a pretty good system. You can see problems coming in advance and avert them. I mean, getting to a performance management review when you've told you've done terrible and you didn't see it coming, that's the worst sign. It means something's gone wrong in the performance evaluation system. 
Yeah, I think HR agrees with you. You failed if, it, if you find out at the end of the year you weren't doing well. Well, Nick, I, this was a fascinating conversation. Not only did we not learn here about donut effect, we heard about <laughs> the vanilla of hybrid work. <laughs> and I just want to thank you for coming on the future of HR. It was fascinating and just so, so insightful. Thank you, Nick, for being on the podcast. JP, enjoyed the podcast and thanks very much for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Nick for sharing his insights and research on working from home, hybrid work, and what the future of work will look like. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and share our podcast with at least one other person. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps with our mission of inspiring next generation HR leaders. We'll be back next week with a new What Works episode featuring Ann Gotti, VP HR and Global Talent at General Mills, and Joe Garbus, EVP Global Head of Talent at PVH Corporation. In this What Works episode, we're going to go deep on talent reviews as Ann and Joe share their insights on what makes a successful talent review and what to avoid. You won't want to miss this conversation. Thanks again for listening to the Future of HR and being part of our community.